The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Everybody and welcome, welcome I say to episode zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Where, where's "welcome"? I tell you, come from. <laughs> <laughs> she just said hello. Well, that was that was me. Okay, that was me putting myself he's in just, the podcast. He's making oh, okay. it cozy, giving it yeah. a little bit more yeah. character. I, I right. want, can he, I be me? Introduce he's, yourself, me. He's putting out a throw pillow. Thank the guests you. at home. <laughs> would you, would you like some tang? I made everyone some tang. Ooh, no. Uh, my name is William Never. Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. <laughs> my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname, but I am a big Rocky Horror enthusiast. And uh, with us this week on Episode Zero is one of my very favorite people. She is a writer. She is a soap maker par excellence. She's 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 really really cool. She's, she's M. Lapis around da Silva. the house. She's <laughs> she's M. Lapis de Silva. We're talking Hi. about one of her favorite movies this week. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, and what is one of your favorite movies, M. Lapis de Silva? Oh, gotta be faster, Pussycat. Kill, kill. You name it, we've got it. Faster, Pussycat. Kill, kill. Delivers tons more than the opposition. Unladylike karate chops. Ungentlemanly haymakers. Spirited gymnastics. Corrective table etiquette, sandbox jousting, or a muscle-bound cat wrestling with a roaring sports car that's intent upon squashing him like a grape. Bizarre kidney and chassis-rattling chases, and for the first time on the screen, a hay-making, belly-busting, karate-chopping, judo-flipping fight to win them all. Superwoman against man. The prize, life itself. Slashing, tackling, gouging, hacking, flipping, belting, smashing, and blasting. Muscle to muscle, bone to bone. For an incredible evening's entertainment, a film so totally satisfying, see Russ Meyer, Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. A subtle title for a subtle film. And, and Yay. A, <laughs> and and a, a very strange title because cats don't take orders. <laughs> Can't say, hey, hey, house cat, go fast. Okay, no, lay down. No, no, no. See, that's okay, the deal. No, now... Lick your behind. It Good. illustrates. <laughs> it illustrates just how rebellious mm. the characters in the film are because we're going to tell them to go faster, pussycat, mm. kill, kill, and they're going to be like, "No, we're going to go faster for a bit, then take some time, have a nice chicken dinner, maybe have sex, maybe not, 
and then maybe kill once or twice. If we want to. If, if Because we want to, because not because it, you told us. Because it's occurred to us. I'm, I'm going to break this guy's spine because I want to. For fun. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> Turasatana did, or uh, Varla, did not need to kill that guy. But yeah. she did. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Um, yeah. Faster Pussy Cat Kill Kill is... Uh, oh, by the way, the premise of the show... You <laughs> <laughs> said it was the Rocky Horror Picture just, Show podcast. Just so we're this clear. the we're, prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture That's show. right. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a pop culture phenomenon, and we're talking about all the films that led up to it because it didn't come from nowhere. So we're talking about various films that paved the way for Rocky Horror, directly or indirectly. And Faster Pussycat is one of the sort of counterculture touchstones of the 1960s. And it is a genuine classic. And the plot is Michelle. It's me? Yes. Describe the plot to us. Um, I was still thinking about the title. Can I just talk about the title for a minute? Because it's so good. Um, I mean, it's an entreaty. The three main characters of our our plot are go-go dancers and they're go-go dancers living on the edge. Like, they're go-go dancers that like to race their cool little roadsters out in the desert in insane chicken matches of death. And, yeah, that's basically who they are. Um, and the title, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, I mean, we had at this time rock music that was, like, saying, what's new, Pussycat, in that way, mm. like, Referring to women as pussycats, as, you know... Gentle beings. Yeah, yeah, this kind of, like, domestic being, mm. right? Well, you still know? being sensual, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the pet. Yeah, and there's this idea of um, these go-go dancers who are being told at the beginning of the movie by the men who are viewing them to go, go. Mm. You know, they're being told what to do, to go and to be faster and faster. Mm. And this is kind of them allowed to go as fast as they want to which is murderous yeah the whole opening of the movie like the credits is just varla played by the great taurus satana uh rosie played by haji and billy aka boom boom Mm -hmm. Boom uh, played by laurie williams and yeah they're all go-go dancers they're not stripping but they're in you know bikinis and they've got you know, bits on their bikinis that jiggle and look really cool when they go... Tassels. Tassels. Thank yeah. you. Bits that go jiggle. Yeah. What do you want? Bits, bits that go jiggle. I, if, if someone doesn't know the meaning of the word tassel, I helped. If uh, someone yeah. does know the meaning of the word tassel, I sound like a fool. Uh, Tura Satana also did the choreography for that scene. She uh, was a go-go dancer going back to when she was 15. Wow. Uh, and, and she was known for how well she could bend over backwards. Nice. Um, yeah, look up the biography of Tura Satana at some point because, wow. Fascinating life. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, yeah, so we, we see them doing their go-go dancing. This is their day job. And we see just a bunch of sweaty, gross men yelling at them. And then that's that's like the man's world. But once they're out of their day job, they will fuck anything up. <laughs> they will fuck anything and anyone they want to. They will they will they will kill kill if they yeah. choose to. They're 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 we, we get to see them. This is what all go go dancers do, I assume, on their off day. They mm. operate from their base desires, and how that tends to manifest in American pop culture is one of two ways. One is the superhero who gets to operate from their base desires and impulses of good or justice. They can rescue people, but also violence. Yes. Yeah. The other flip side is the serial killer. 
Mm. Um, who is allowed to act on their negative impulses in a way that's dramatic and artsy, a la Hannibal Lecter. So because super, super ego versus id, then. Yeah, it's it's kind of, those are the two, like, at the polar opposites in American pop culture. It, it's kind of the fantasies. And this fantasy is one that synchronizes um, kind of his like Russ Meyer's concept of women as being super powered um, that he plays with in a lot of his other films and the super vixen series, but it's not like as direct in faster pussycat. They're just mm. larger than life. They're not necessarily given mm. superpowers, but they are murderous and they mm. are allowed mm. to act on those murderous, greedy impulses. I, I think they exist in sort of a, uh, a sort of a fantasy realm, but unlike a lot of other movies with a go-go sort of vibe especially mm-hmm. at the time uh where the implication was this is this film is being lecherous yeah russ meyer who really loved the female form no one could pretend otherwise uh he to his credit he saw women as incredibly powerful and even in, in the ones where they weren't literally super powered they are larger than life and they have their own thing going on. And it's not about the men in the world. The fact they're actively angry at a variety of the men. And they just kind of want to use them because on their day job they have to be used. And that's like the job. They do it. But this is who they really are. And they're five seconds from throwing down and brawling with grown men within the plot. I mean, mm-hmm. and they do. They, at any time. They yeah. throw fists whenever they feel like it. Whenever they're angry. Um, and I think that it's interesting because like in most media most films we don't see women especially at the time we don't see women who are allowed to do that or to act like that mm-hmm. in cinema so that was really something yeah we see so many so many like macho movies you your, your charles bronson films your schwarzenegger films where everyone's allowed to be larger than life and bigger than life even physically and they can solve all their problems in whatever over-the-top way they want. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there weren't nearly enough of those about women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this one was a bomb when it came out. Uh, ridiculous. Th- it was the, like a, in a little cycle of what uh, Russ Meyer cultists call his Ruffy series. There was yeah. a series of films about essentially rough women. Which played very directly into Russ Meyer's own fantasies. He liked uh, yeah. women who looked a certain way. He liked big boobs. There's no two ways about <laughs> no, it. No, there's no two ways about it. You just have to come out and say he was a breast man very clearly. Um, this is the one film of his where an actress was padded. Wow. Really? <laughs> yep. Huh. <laughs> it's also uh, one of his only films that does not have any nudity in it. There's uh, a lot of implied is, nudity. Yeah. People with their backs like, like, us, but, but yeah, like, there's, yeah. No, there's yeah. no frontal nudity in this film, which is a bit of an oddity for Russ Meyer. That's true. Um, but yeah, when this film came out, uh, critics and audiences just roundly rejected it. They found it to be a little bit more amateurish than the things that had come before it, stuff like Motorcycle. Uh, and it, it didn't really uh, seem to be bringing anything new to the conversation. A lot of critics uh, rejected it because it seemed to be just Russ Meyer rolling around in his, in his fetishes. Which he admittedly was. He was trying to... He had no motivation for making this film. And he said this in interviews about all of his movies, uh, other than Lust and Profit. Uh, Russ Meyer was kind of a weird pioneer in that he self-funded almost all of his movies. Yep. He owns the rights to all of his films. Except for, I think, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which he did for a studio. I think that's like one of his only studio films. Maybe there's two or three others. And that movie, of course, was co-written by... 
Uh, critic Roger Ebert. Yep. So, stamp of approval. Boom. <laughs> Ebert approves yeah. of Russ Meyer. Uh, I, I remember when the uh, Roger Ebert documentary came out, mm-hmm. and they're uh, talking to people who knew him and other critics, and you know, reflecting over this part of Ebert's career where he's writing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls with Russ Meyer, and yeah. talking about how great Russ Meyer was, and they kept on asking, why did Roger Ebert keep, keep going back to Russ Meyer? And the only thing they could do is kind of like look down at their laps and say, well... Roger Ebert also liked big boobs. Like that, that, that was the only thing they could come up with. Like that was what they bonded over. It was really just this mutual appreciation. But, but here's the thing I think is cool about Russ Meyer is that when you look at his filmography, and I've been slowly working my way through it. I'd seen some, but Michelle's a fan. And I will yield the floor to you in just one second. But like, I, as I also like big boobs. I'm. <laughs> that's. <laughs> and it cannot lie. That's probably. I mean, in a large part, what initially drew me to his filmography. Right. I. I'm not but going to deny that. The thing well, is, that, but that's one of the the just base appeals is there's a visceral yeah. exciting, and that includes the cast. But I think that the thing that I keep gravitating towards beyond the fact that women are neat, like beyond that. Mm. Uh, what I keep finding fascinating about Russ Meyer is that he made so many movies, some of them just little nudie flicks of just women jumping up and down for like hours. Like, that's literally, kind of it, yeah. He, yeah. that's where he got his start, just doing that kind yeah, of stuff. Man. But he kept making so many movies. He was really prolific. This was the third feature film he released in 1965 after Mud Honey and Motor Psycho. So yeah. he was prolific. Mm. He developed skills. He knew how to tell a story by this point. And even though. He well, was by his he own. Start as a documentarian during one of the World War, like World War. Oh, oh I'm actually not sure. About I that. believe that. that was his. That was his start, mm-hmm. and um, he got yeah, interested in like... and learned the camera then. And then when he came out, yeah. Here's 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 something I just I just looked I was looking over the Wikipedia page, so take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but uh, in World War, this is a quote from Wikipedia. In World War Two, mm-hmm. according to Meyer. He was in a French brothel with Ernest Hemingway, who? <laughs> Already a great start. Who? I'm curious. Hemingway, upon finding out that Meyer was a virgin, offered him the sex worker of his choice, and Meyer picked the one with the largest breasts. Well, that's... You know, that you, makes perfect okay. sense. I mean... Mm-hmm. I have no reason to doubt the, again, the veracity of that story. Again, I, the stamp of approval from greatness. Oh, God, I hate Hemingway. I know. I know. <laughs> He's famous. I, I'm, I'm not a fan. <laughs> well, you don't like a gigantic male penis man writing stories about You mean male him and Hawingway? <laughs> I remember the first time I read a Hemingway book, and I was just like, I would kill for an adjective right now. Like, any <laughs> adjective. Just yeah. put it in somewhere. I don't care. Just like effluvian. I don't care. One. One. <laughs> But um, but back to Russ Meyer. Back to Russ Meyer. My point is, he was prolific and be- emotions. He was anyway. prolific, <laughs> and I think over time he just kept getting better and better at it. And because he was so unapologetically like indulging in his own interests, boy, did he become an auteur. Like if auteur hmm. theory exists, and we've talked a lot before about how Whitney and I think it's like a kind of a sometimes kind of a theory, like only applies to a few. Mm-hmm. There's no mistaking a Russ Meyer movie. Oh, yeah. Mm. I, th- I think because he had that amount of freedom to be in control of his production so much, um, his fingerprints got all over every part of the process. He was editing Faster Pussycat. I mean, you know, he was doing, you know, cinematography, mm. all that stuff, and directing. It's really, that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So and, it's and very much his own thing. It's, it's 
beautiful privilege that no. like so I, many I, people get. Oh, I wish that so many filmmakers could get that opportunity. Yeah. You know, like, seriously. It's incredible. Um so uh the basic plot of uh Fast and Pussycat is they're go-go dancers, it's their day off, they're in their hot roadsters in the middle of the desert, and they're just doing what they would normally do, I guess, driving around, fighting, mm. bathing, fighting because they're <laughs> bathing, being mad about fighting because they're bathing and fighting over it. And then wholesome teens show up in their own hot rod and said, Hey ladies, we just wanted to do some time trials with our car. Do you mind? And Tora Satana, who is just a fucking comic book character come to life. She's just like an edifice of badassery. Yeah. Oh my She's God. a pillar of strength. Yeah. She really is. Just plants herself in the ground and hands on her hips forced to like they cannot be ignored, basically. Mm. The, uh, yeah. The weird scattershot dialogue is is something to behold, however. Uh, it's mm. just... It's like Russ Meyer came... It's like English wasn't even his first language. It kind of comes in from it, like, from this weird diagonal angle. Mm. It's like, that that's quite a car. You'll have to time it with an hourglass. And somebody jumps in. Did someone mention my figure? Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> but I love that. It's so pulp. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pulp's pulp. And it's... it's it sings for me, honestly. And, no, it's uh, incredible dialogue in like, this movie in particular. Oh, and, and the actors yeah. are and not you, natural enough actors that they're trying to make it sound natural. No, so it, they're it not has going this for really kind of stagey quality to it. And it makes the dialogue seem all the weirder. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, this is where the phrase, uh, you're, you're cute, like a velvet glove cast in iron comes from. And I, I know that phrase from a Daniel Klaus comic book. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> but it sure sounds awesome. Yeah. Like you're cute, like a velvet, velvet glove, cast in iron. I, it's very evocative. I learned I learned yeah. English from the titles of pulp novels in the 30s. I think yeah, she's just you saying you're cute because I mean it's like you're useless. Mm-hmm. I think she's basically <laughs> calling the girl out as being useless. Yeah, you're yeah, cute like right. a velvet glove cast in iron. It mm. means you're cute like something that no one can actually use. There you go. Nice. That's what it, you know what it's I mean? Poetry. Like, that's how it sings. Mm. It's so good. So it, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. So let's grab a vine and start swinging. Yeah. Just so much good stuff in mm. this movie. Anyway, they, they, these two uh, wholesome all-American teens, they're there to do their time travels. Varla is completely unimpressed. And decides to challenge him to an actual race. Guy gets his ass kicked. Varla and him get in a fight. Varla beats the shit out of him until he dies. <laughs> she she, she bra- deliberately breaks his spine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're laughing because it's so entertaining to watch. It's so good. It really... I... You know... <laughs> it's interesting because... This is a horror movie for... The girl who's showing up to do the time trials. Yeah, she's she's a pretty naive, innocent person who immediately, as soon as her boyfriend is killed, yeah. gets kidnapped by the go-go dancers, and they never explain what their plan is for her. Yeah. They just know they can't let her go, but they, it's never just like, I, do we brainwash her and make her a go-go dancer? Do we, like, throw her off a cliff? What's the plan? They have no plan. 
So, and you know, they know that it's these bad. Yeah. They're going to commit bad acts. You know they're going to be violent. They're going to do something bad and sketchy mm. and violent. Um they're kind of monsters that you end up rooting for in a way because even though the time, you know, the time trial girl who ends up getting kidnapped by the go-go dancers has stumbled mm. into this horror story, you kind of like the monsters, well, <laughs> at least the, some the, of these monsters. The, the in time particular. trial girl is named Linda, by the Linda, way. Linda, thank by you. Actress Susan Bernard, who yes. passed away just recently. Yeah, um, but uh, she was also a Playboy centerfold, and she was married to actor and playwright Jason Miller, who was the uh, priest who was questioning his faith in The Exorcist. Oh, okay. And she's the mother of Joshua John Miller who was in movies like Near Dark and ended up writing or co-writing a really good horror comedy called Final Girls, which is nice. basically about growing up with a parent who was an actor and their most famous work involves them dying. And so it's growing up watching your parents die. Mm. Um, it's actually a really good film. But, um, is, yeah. But, but it, to the point where that girl is clearly innocent, but at the same time, I think in Russ Meyer's universe... She represents something that needs to be destroyed. Her and her boyfriend recommend recommend they they represent like square America, mm-hmm. wholesome, sexless, boring, not even competitive. No, they race yeah. against the clock. They, they they're oh, not alive. Them. They're yeah. not alive. They know cars are fast, but they don't know what to do with them. Yeah. They know their bodies are young, and you know and. Full of life. Full of sex, life. Yeah. yeah, but they but they're not doing anything with them. Right. So what good are they? Their lives are a waste. And if Varla the only way Varla can teach them that is to kill them, uh that's the movie. <laughs> you either you're either on board with that or you fuck off, basically, is where we are with Fast to Pussycat. And I think yeah. a lot of critics fucked off at the time. A lot of them fucked back on later. Yeah, um, there was a, a famous, uh, oh, let me look up her name. Um, oh, yeah, I was looking at this, too. There was a famous queer critic who saw it when the, the film first came out and, mm-hmm. and dismissed it like so many critics did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Be Ruby Rich. Be Ruby Rich, that was her. Uh, she, uh, she, yeah, she said this is just another, like, S&M sex fantasy for, for Ross Meyer, I don't care. Sure. And then years later, decades later, she revisited it and said, wait a minute, this is like a feminist masterpiece. Like, we really need to... Re- this was back in the 90s, and yeah. we really, really need to start reconsidering this sort of thing. And that's when, uh, I think there was this wide push, like, in the mid-90s, 95, when mm. it was widely re-released. And a lot of critics came back around around that time to Faster Pussycat, realizing, wait a minute, okay. this is, like, the archetypal grindhouse feature brought to, like, to sort of this logical extreme. I've talked a lot about how uh, this is John Waters' favorite movie, Nice. And the the quote, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, not only is it the best movie ever made, it's the best movie that could ever be made. Like, there, you're not going to get better than Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. It, it, he's not far from being he's wrong. He's not far from being I, wrong. And I and even though yeah. Russ Meyer was just sort of following his own S&M fantasies, he, he was writing the kind of women he wanted to be around. Mm-hmm. These, you know, buxom ladies who were just going to push him around. Yeah. That was his fetish. And yet, in so doing, he took the male gaze kind of out of it in this weird way. It kind of looped back around and gave the power right back to the women. You get, like, one scene, like, in the credits of ostensibly the male gaze, but then whenever we see the men, they're so unappealing. Well, not necessarily. Actually, there's a few shots where uh, Russ Meyer 
treats some of the men crotch first oh, or yeah. ass first. Mm. And he has lingering kind of sexy shots. And they're particular, they're when the go-go dancers, uh, I want to say maybe it's Varla, is sizing up um, one of the other characters later on oh, in the Varla stories. and Boom Boom, I think, both do it. Cause yeah. Because there's, there's this, okay, so the basic... What happens next, just so we can get to this point, Mm -hmm. uh, they're driving around with their kidnapping victim, and they go to a gas station, and the gas station guy says, I have so much exposition for you. And then he says, so there's this guy over here in the desert, and he has so much money because he was involved in a train accident, now he can't walk anymore, and he's just sitting on all this money, and he's also an asshole, so no one would care if you killed him. And they're like, cool. So they drive over to that guy. He's got one boring, kind of effeminate son, and one gigantic, hunky, dimwit son. Yeah. You should sleep with the dimwit and kill the, the, the... Other guy. Yeah, we're yeah. paraphrasing. Uh, and so well, they the, do, and when they the, get there, it turns out the guy who's like the patriarch of this family is this grotesque monster of a man, mm-hmm. and his son, it's almost like a Master Blaster scenario, like in uh, Ro- uh, not Road Warrior, uh, Mad Max Beyond uh, Thunderdome. He's just this giant, muscly hunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A fair warning, there is a lot of ableism with the depiction of this family. Um, yeah in general the the monstrous patriarch is in a wheelchair for a lot of the story and there's some bad things said about him i mean i can't remember the phrasing but it's not good and then there's other stuff about the son who they make a lot of comments about his intelligence mm-hmm. and stuff like and that. And it's hard to say. The implication is that he may actually just be a victim of so much psychological abuse from his father that he's just sort of retreated inward. Yeah. And so it's hard to say just where he stands and what he is, in yeah, the, what, what his inner world is like. It's all. It's really hard to tell. They, they, they call not... him the vegetable, though. Yeah. Yeah. They This world that Varla and Rosie and Boom Boom enter is a world of male isolation mm-hmm. and enormous toxicity and disgust. And incredible misogyny whenever the women come around because you can just see them licking their Mm -hmm. lips. Yeah. It's so gross. And they're they're playing along a little bit because trying to find out where this money is. But they're also trying to sort of take advantage of them because their sexism leaves them open to manipulation and potentially Mm -hmm. to be used sexually by these strong women. Yeah, well, the the men there are sexual predators who it's implied that they have a history of raping and murdering women, you know, that that's their M.O. There's a lot of, you could see a lot of, um, what is it, Devil's Rejects getting influenced from this movie in in particular, because it's obvious that it's like this house of horror where the whole family is kind of horrific Mm. and... They're all in it together. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I remember we were watching this uh, again, and I was just struck by, like, yeah, every time I watch The Devil's Rejects, I'm like, this is what Rub Zombie meant, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. because it's got that layer of absolute scuzz. But I feel like even though our heroes are clearly not nice people, mm-hmm. they're being placed adjacent to people who are so much worse. That 
you can't help but be on their be on the right side. Yeah. Plus, this that. film is way sexier. Oh, infinite. Oh, I just, well, I mean, Devil's Rejects makes you want to take a shower afterwards. Yeah, That's just a gross movie. It's just, but this uh, one, it's like I, I wanted to briefly mention it because we just for a second talked about it, like how there's the male gaze for sure. I still feel like the female gaze is a part of this film mm. as well, and because of that, I because it is considering both gazes, it feels like this film is kind of the bisexual gaze. Yeah, you like know, you've got two of everything and yeah. some left over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where, uh, there's a lot of close-ups on the vegetables, like muscles and biceps, mm. and in fact, the lascivious old man says. By the way, he's credited as that. By the way, that, that's, that's the, the character's, character's yeah. name. That's not, that's not me being just, crass. just for yeah, the record, in case anyone's uh, reeling, yeah. because that sucks. But it's, uh, it's what the movie calls it. But yeah. uh, the lascivious old man says, "Hey, son, why don't you go out and just like show off your bod?" To seduce this woman who's clearly into you, mm-hmm. and she just goes for it. Yeah, and and he's like a little timid, so she's yeah. the one who's going after him. And yeah, he's working out of this very hunky, sexy Steve Reeves way, and she's just sort of prowling around him like a jungle cat, mm. yeah. trying to like get him to be like, "Hey, we're alone." <laughs> I'm a go-go dancer who loves fucking, and you're the sexiest man on two legs. Maybe if you had more, you'd be the sexiest man on all legs. Anyway, my point is this. Uh, Russ Meyer writes better dialogue than I do. <laughs> There's a reason. But that's, that's, that's an interesting point, though, that this is the bisexual gaze, because, yeah. yeah, we're looking at him just as much as we're looking at the women. Yeah. And men are trying to have sexual agency, but it's the women who have all... Like, everybody seems to have... Sexual agency—they're all wicked. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them is kind of evil in their own way. But except Linda. Uh, pardon, except Linda. Except Linda, who's just, just a the, victim. Just the victim of all of this. But yeah, yeah. everybody else is sort of wicked, and they're all trying to essentially over-assert their sexuality at one another. Yep. Which makes this the sexual dynamic so much like so beautifully balanced, mm-hmm. uh, rather than it being just. Uh, I've seen so many exploitation movies where we're just going to look at the ladies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's clearly made by dudes who are making it for other dudes. Mm-hmm. Russ Meyer wasn't bisexual. That we but know it, of. That we know of. That we know of, but... Mm-hmm. He, but this, this film might thinking, be an argument for it. I was thinking about that, and I yeah. feel like, to an extent, one thing that interests me about Russ Meyer is that he's not just looking at women mm-hmm. when he when he films mm-hmm. them, at least in his narrative movies. Obviously, he did like a bunch of silent nudie flicks, but... Mm-hmm. In every movie I've seen where the women are, you know, have characters, whether it's really, really goofy, like Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, or, you know, very, very strongly goofy, you know, like a positive way, like Super Vixens, or or even some of his really, really bad stuff. Like, what was, um, oh, what was that horrible movie he did? Um, Black Snake. Oh, Black Snake yeah, is, Black Snake is a bad movie. No, Do no, not see Black Snake. I, I haven't seen Black it's, Snake. It's really gross. But even in all of those movies, he's not just interested in looking at women. He's interested in the power that they exert over men. And I think he understands that in order to convey that cinematically, he needs to put us in their head. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we don't get to see enough in other cinema. Yeah, I think mm. so. Yeah. It's exciting. It's so cool. <laughs> I think yeah, it's, it's neat. Yeah. It's really exciting. Yeah. John Waters owes his career to this movie. Quentin Tarantino owes his career to this he, movie. Quentin Tarantino almost remade this. Oh, yeah, I can't quite imagine that. Well, if, if anybody's gonna. Um, you, can, you, can see it's, you can see its impact on things like uh, Death Proof. Yeah. In particular. Yeah. It's definitely got a vibe. Especially sure. the last part of it. Um, 
But um, in any case, the the plot is basically they're there, there's sexy times, there's Mm -hmm. wickedness. Uh, People keep trying to escape and then getting pulled back in from the desert. And then finally Varla just says, fuck it, and tries to kill everybody and does a pretty good job. (laughs) Could have done better, but does a pretty good job. There's so much cool. I love the way Russ, I'm just going to call him Russ. I love the way Russ, Russ shoots action in this because it's like a comic book. He knows to find exactly the right dynamic angle for a shot. Yep. And then you cut to another dynamic angle. There's this great bit, it's been gift over and over again, of Varla just whipping out a switchblade, boom, hand in the frame, close up, pull back, you know, new shot, her just flinging it past the camera, and then the person who gets hit in the back with a knife just like lunging in front into the foreground with her breasts akimbo. Mm -hmm. And it's such good filmmaking. Yeah. It's so exciting to watch. It is a damn sight better shot than a lot of the contemporary action movies that people like more than this. Or they they probably never seen it, but you know what I mean. Like it's it, it's so nicely crafted. The yeah. movie that was clearly so cheap and fast. <laughs> he really well, just the, the, he just Russ Meyer just had that uh, that instinct. He knew how to shoot a scene. There's some you had some a really good eye. Just, yeah, you like, know, just like, have have an eye for the crowd. I feel the same way about uh, John Carpenter. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. his, his, the material fluctuates and the quality of his films fluctuate, but he always knows where to put a camera. Yeah. Just knows how to shoot that scene and make it really luring. And I think, uh, I think that's true of Russ Meyer as well. He just knows how, how quickly he needs to cut something and how an action scene ought to look. He, oh, w- yeah. he was weaned on a lot of uh, exploitation movies, clearly, and he's just making the best version of it uh, based on his own ideas. And he just happens to do it incredibly well. Uh Speaking of exploitation movies, uh, this came up in like a whole wave when a lot of exploitation movies were kind of on the rise in the underground. There was a lot of uh, exciting new underground filmmakers that were coming up. Some weren't so exciting, like uh, Love Camp 7 is a really boring movie that was around the same time. Uh, Look it up sometime. The director is a very interesting queer icon. Um, uh, I'm sad that the movie isn't that interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was another one of these. He was doing all these, like, gore movies. Uh, And... The gore-gore girls. There you go, and 2000 Maniacs. Uh, (laughs) The word word gore is in a lot of his uh, film titles. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And... As such, we're getting this whole sort of bubbling up of what would eventually become to known... be known as the cult film. Uh, That is... And this is where we're going to start... Well, I'm going to try to start tying it into uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because there's some... What differentiates a cult film from a, a non-cult film? Mm. And so, uh, over the years, that, that doesn't, definition has changed. One has a um, cult? One, yeah. One, <laughs> well, but one has a cult, but, you know, anything that has a following. But if it's a big... Like, you know, Star Wars has a big following, does that make it a cult movie? No, that's no. just a religion now. Exactly. That's just a, a ma- Wait, mainstream popular film. I think that just makes it a cult, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to fight you too hard on that, Again, but if, anyone, like, if you like, want to like draw a distinction... The, I like I've said, the definitions are a little bit amorphous. Yeah. I, uh, uh, Bruce Campbell wants to find a cult film. Uh, a mainstream film is uh, a, a film a thousand pe- or te- a million people have seen once, and a cult film is a film one person has seen a million times, or something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, a fun definition. Be- yeah. Before before a lot of films were sort of widely available, you know, the internet kind of broke down a lot of this stuff, but a cult film for the longest time was the one that you kind of needed to be in on. 
Right. It was this oddity that you had had to discover. Mm-hmm. You had to go a ways to come to this weird thing. Mm-hmm. You had and there was this. You had to develop sort of this kinship with this odd thing, rather and than it the, coming all the way to you and entertaining you. Yeah, yeah. You a lot had of times to go underground to find people it. had to introduce you to it. You got to yeah. see this movie, and mm-hmm. then if you found someone at a party or something who knew the cult film you liked mm-hmm. and liked it too, you knew we're cool. But yeah, there was like this, this password all of a sudden, yeah. and I feel like you had to buy tickets to screenings, man. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you look at a lot of these cult films, particular Faster Pussycat and Rocky Horror, and I think Varla and Frankenfurt are very similar. Uh, were these sort of villainous figures in charge of their sexuality who were the draw? They were the ones that you loved the most, even though they did kind of the wickedest things in the movie, it, arguably. It's weird and they see, get, uh, they're both characters that get scapegoated by the plot at the end. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and they're yeah. the ones The movie are, has to turn on them, even though they're mm-hmm. clearly the hero. And, yeah. and, exactly. they're, and they're very... At, both of these characters are very actively seeking to corrupt 1950s squareness yeah. Yeah. in, in, the ter- in uh, Linda and in Brad and Jen. They, they like represent all of counterculture mm-hmm. in one place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I think having a figure like that at the, the head of your movie is inviting the audience to say, you want to fuck everything up. <laughs> We need you to want to everything to fuck for you to fuck everything up, and I think that's a really powerful connection to develop with an audience. When they... It's appealing to something that uh, you might have to acknowledge as an unsavory part of yourself, but you also love that part of yourself. Yeah, and, one... I, and I feel like the, that's the way uh, these two movies really kind of gel, and yeah. kind of what defines a cult movie in a lot. But of ways. one thing I think is actually kind of interesting is that it, clearly thematically. Varla and Frankenfurter have a lot in common in terms of sort of what they represent. Mm. Structurally, on the other hand, it actually has different parallels. In particular, I think there's this big dinner sequence in both films. Mm. And in this in the in Rocky Horror, it's Frankenfurter inviting everyone to the most uncomfortable dinner ever, in mm. which uh, they're very psychologically abusive to people who are under their thumb, and they're very weird to their guests, and it's very predatory and um, and in Faster Pussycat, it's actually the old man mm. who's at the head of that table. Yeah. And he's the one making everyone uncomfortable. And actually the position, because Varla and Boom Boom and Haji, they're the ones who are actually visiting Frank's castle. But Frank's castle in this one is a den of regressive toxic masculinity mm. and predatory male behavior. So this yeah. is Frank, this is Frankenfurter going to someone else's castle to fuck shit up. Yeah. It's um, also... Fairy tales. It's it's going into the robber's den and mm. sitting, mm. you know, and hiding behind the barrels and, mm. and waiting <laughs> for them to finish eating before you yeah. sneak off. You know, mm. it's a, ancient. <laughs> here's another quote um, from the old man: "Women, they let them vote, smoke, and drive, even put them in pants. And what happens? A Democrat for president." <laughs> Bunch of smoke up your chimney. Russian roulette on the highways. Can't even tell a brother from a sister unless you meet him up close. That's a yeah. quote from the lascivious old man. That's the yeah. lascivious old man. <laughs> and it does feel like something that could come and right out of Rocky scene. Horror. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think Michelle, you know, you brought up the fact that this is kind of a fairy tale. And there's something really just primal about this movie. And mm-hmm. the idea of its plot is kind of irrelevant. Because, yeah. <laughs> again, the plot doesn't really track. You know, the, the no. treasure... Not that important. Kidnapping no. Linda? 
doesn't actually end up going anywhere. Like, it's not about that. It's, it's about... about surviving your circumstances, which yeah. is what most fairy tales are about. Yeah. The fairy tale is fairy gold. It disappears on the morning or before the plot's over. Hmm. So it doesn't matter. The whole thing is whether that kid who meandered into this plot <laughs> is going to get the heck out. <laughs> And, I'm honestly yeah. here's the here's the here's the damn thing. I was so focused on Varla. I don't remember if she does. I don't Linda, remember if Linda, Linda does get out. Linda gets out. Yeah. Well, good for I, her, I guess. Spoiler. <laughs> we, um, we we usually talk about the whole movie. So spoiler: okay. we don't really you know you don't really care about Linda because Russ Meyer I don't think really cares about Linda much as much. Now. I think that he cares enough to keep her in the plot going, yeah. but. Um, and he does kind of have this moment where, towards the end, it's like the characters are trying to walk, keep trying to walk away from the movie, and Varla keeps trying to drag them back in. <laughs> and they're just keep, they could just keep trying to say, no, we're going to just leave this movie, leave your money, we, we don't want any of your bullshit, we yeah. don't want to get murdered, we're done with this fairy tale. And she just keeps pursuing them in the desert, you know, <laughs> to to her. See, know, and the part of me is thinking, movie. like, yeah. in a meta way, like, like Tura Satana is like, no, this is my big film. Get the fuck back here. <laughs> this is my one big fucking film. This is my iconic history-making <laughs> performance. She did her own fight choreography in this movie, too. Yeah. In fact, she did all the fight choreography and she had to, like, drag people in it. And, like, apparently had to shoot some of it in reverse. Because people were so bad at fighting. She was carrying all of those fights. Like, literally. performances. Yeah. Literally physically carrying people. She's so... Badass? Powerful is the word mm-hmm. I was thinking of. Yeah. She's just... She really pops off the screen. Like, mm-hmm. she's so confident and so distinct. And it really... It's... it's it's like you never hear like a, like a really great song for the first time, and it's such a good song you feel like you've heard it before. Mm-hmm. It's just like this song has already been around because seriously, how could it not? It's just so catchy. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like to see Tora Satana work in this, where you're just like, we always had a Tora Satana, right? Like right from the beginning of cinema, mm-hmm. because yeah. we needed one. <laughs> and where was she? Well, she's great because her physical presence broadens our definition and our perceptions of femininity in media, which Mm. at the time were sorely lacking and are still sorely lacking in diversity of expression, but we're doing better. (laughs) We're trying at least. I think some people are. I have faith in humanity. Anyway, yeah. Like like maybe a little bits of like birds of prey and a few other things where people are trying to reach back, I think. Yeah. We're seeing it, I think more and more, but, um, I, I yearn often for an unapologetic butch dyke, um, in pop culture. Someone Mm. that's well built and not some skinny little thing who will just be a bundle of toothpicks. Mm. I, I, I want to see more women. I want to see fat women. I want to see them be powerful and interesting, not just peripheral characters. Mm. Yeah. Or, or comic relief, as is often Yeah, the mostly yeah. it's the, ter- the roles that are available are awful. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, and it's an excellent point, and... and it's so weird that you have to, like, reach back into, like, 
a sleaze maestro like Russ Meyer to find that. And that there's so little elsewhere. And because his interest in bigger women, in strong women, was perceived of as sleaze or kink, it provides an opportunity for women watching the media to gain strength. Yeah. Tell people, tell yeah. people about because this is an, we're not we're not going to go into as much detail about it, but the movie that you introduced me to with Russ Meyer, this was many years ago now, mm. that completely unlocked like how exciting he was as a filmmaker was Super Vixen. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that and why they should seek that out? Because I feel like that's also very much the sort of larger than life it's power fantasy good. in a different way. I'm going to grain of salt it because depictions of sexual assault. Um, that one mm. are rough. Yeah, the um, villain in that one's really brutal. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that like the movie itself is interesting and a lot of fun, but I think that some of the the violence depicted against women is rougher than even what you're gonna get in watching Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. So bear in mind before you indulge in these kinds of things. Yeah, but a lot of Russ Meyer's Super Vixen world, um, it's it works with the baseline assumption that all women in his cinematic universe are innately superpowered. You, every character has a name like Super Linda, Super mm. Emily, Super Varla, Super, <laughs> like, and... <laughs> he, he, there's even a Super Woman in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and there's Super Angel, I think, is one of the characters and stuff like that. And they are just innately very powerful and big and bigger than life. And they have huge desires and they brawl with men in order to get what they want. Yeah. There's ostensibly a male protagonist in that movie, but he's just shuffled aside by every Mm -hmm. single person. And he just, he's so... He's kind of tossed around. He's kind of callous. Yeah. Yeah. And he, yeah, basically, yeah, he's a victim of the plot. And Mm -hmm. the only people with agency in the plot are the villain who will get his comeuppance and every woman in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the women are all sexual, all like want to have just a good time and transcend death. <laughs> well, at, like, at, at the end of at the end of Faster Pussycat, uh, Teresa Tana is dead by the end. Yeah, and uh, the the dialogue about her is uh, like, what what was she? She was nothing, nothing human anyway. You're damn right, she was superhuman. Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah. a uh, and it's yeah. There's this this tragic feeling about the about Teresa Tana's death, even though she was orchestrating all it's, of this death it's herself. like it's like the it's it's almost like the death of king kong where it's just mm. like yeah. well i mean that'll happen yeah. when you climb up there and you piss off all those planes but <laughs> it still sucks it's like that of, shouldn't have been it that should death of king kong is pretty sad <laughs> yeah yeah beauty killed the beast it wasn't me yeah. it wasn't me it wasn't me it wasn't me the guy who forced them to come to new york and 
and put him on display and had no safety precautions whatsoever other than, like, no, no, it was beauty, right? We all agree it was beauty? Yeah. I, I am out look. of the country. I'm, I'm re- it's really kind of upsetting that this this horrible weenie guy was the one to take Teresa Tana's life at the end of the movie. I really mm-hmm. wanted her to be, like, on the top of a speeding train as it derailed or something. Right. It was something much more spectacular. Ugh. It's like, I'm going to get away with it all, and then the blimp explodes. It feels like so many great counterculture movies, and, and including Rocky Horror to some extent, have to pull it back at the end, but they always do so in a way that feels really, like, phony or insincere, so the yeah. people in the audience goes, we know how it really ended. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> we know Varla really... killed everybody We know nobody's like, body was found in the desert that no. day. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is the movie version. Yeah, yeah. whatever. I, I, I talked to uh, John Waters about multiple maniacs, because, uh-huh. you know, Divine is another character like this, who's just this horrendous yeah. person who is living the id and you love her for it and yep. at the end of multiple maniacs she's killed by just people on on a sidewalk out in public and yeah. i asked you know there's something kind of tragic about that aspect of john waters and he said well you know it's just it's the king kong ending it's the godzilla ending divine is godzilla and i said yeah but we love godzilla said, yeah you're damn right <laughs> you love godzilla <laughs> You should feel bad that you they should. Died. There's feel a reason a Frankenstein bad. is yeah. crucified and in Bride of Frankenstein goes, because yeah. it, the society mm. isn't made for them. Mm. That's the tragedy. The tragedy. It goes yeah. to the, yeah. that uh, great Hunter Thompson quote too, too weird to live, too rare to die. But that's, I think now that we've had all these stories where we mm. have it's too weird to live, we mm. can write the next version of that, which is. So weird the world had to make room. Yeah. <laughs> like get out of their damn way. Yeah. That's what like I'm constantly looking for. The like, world really had am. to change mm. for them. Because that I think is more interesting and more productive and really the next philosophical argument to take with our take with us. Mm. You know? Mm. Not not a surrender to, oh my gosh, we can never be our true selves because it'll freak everyone out. But maybe we can actually expand to be just as wonderfully weird as we are because being as weird as we are Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily that harmful. Not necessarily with faster pussycat, but like, yeah, you know. say, not, yeah, not so weird that you're like committing acts of cannibalism. No, <laughs> like, like some of these Depen- people do in these movies. Depends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but think about how many people. Think about how many Have people. You been reading some tweets by Army. And no, I haven't. No, I actually wasn't thinking okay. about that. I was, <laughs> I was just thinking about the cult that has risen like around someone like Hannibal Lecter, where everyone's like, he seems so nice. Like no, yeah, yeah he no. kills and eats people. Well, I mean, look, you just look don't at... like those people because that's how the stories are written. Well, fictional cannibals are what a treat, a delight because mm. they're yeah. whatever we want them to freaking be. And but, well, again, the serial killer fantasy—it's you know, live outside the norm. Yeah, but real killers and real cannibals are not that way. <laughs> they're not charming and they're sexy. They're not yeah. charming. They're not sexy. I mean, this isn't the, the space to really get into a huge topic about it but like <laughs> i was thinking you know. fictional i was thinking in terms of our relation with fictional yeah. characters yeah. But fair enough Th- think yeah. of the arc that that's been applied to darth vader for instance oh, yeah. He's, yeah. He's just this this you know masked enforcer of yeah. space nazis and he was the black knight he was the he was the yeah, guy who served was, the yeah. evil king and, and, that and was he, that. he went yeah. out on his horse and he ended up flying off into space and if he was dead in the next movie that would have made perfect sense but yeah. he was so popular a character they brought him back and made him eviler 
And then over the like, for some reason over the course of of you know the growth of the Star Wars cult, he became this sort of liked character, almost a yeah. sympathetic character. A tragic. Right? It, it's it's really quite sad. Yeah, and the Darth mean, Vader killed all those can people. I, can and I it's just really unpack- this arc about his redemption. No, it's not. When I was thirteen, mm-hmm. I had a huge crush on Darth Vader. Okay, because I had. Zero relationship with my father. (laughs) And I had a thing for robots and machines. I tended to crush on things like Optimus Prime. There you go. Hmm. And he was a robot man (laughs) in a black cape. I was like, ooh, he's a robot man. That's hot. I'm sorry, generations of children who've been fed robot dad, emotionally distant robot dad, and fallen in love with him. He was a terrible role model. (laughs) Turns out he was a whiny teen. Yeah. That's the thing that he was was never a good guy. Never. He was never. And and to be fair, at the very least, the prequels pointed out there were a lot of red flags and we all should have paid attention to it and never given him any power. The only time he was innocent um, was in the Phantom Menace movie. And you ask the fans of those movies that's one of the worst ones and they don't like the actor who played him and they think yeah. the character yeah. is annoying yeah yeah so but when when are we supposed to like this guy i don't i don't i don't i don't think that's the thing i don't think up to I, I don't think you we like should, him but, if yeah. you are a child of emotionally distant <laughs> parents <laughs> to be fair that's a lot of people well, and that's a lot we are a nation mm-hmm. with real bad daddy issues well i think and we're getting over real bad daddy issues in a Real political way right now. But this Sorry, that was my mom texting me. Um, a little ding. Hi, little ding. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's not your, yours, listener. Yeah, sorry about that. But the, the Darth Vader thing, I think, also speaks to uh, both both Rocky Horror and Divine and Varla mm. in that uh, evil <laughs> is empowering. Yeah. yeah. It, Again, it's, you're, it's, we talk about this in the 1960s not, yeah, Batman show we you're, do. You're not just... Counterculture it, is power. It's empowering. It's empowering. And, and I think there's something really, really appealing about people who just love being evil. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that I think that is that Darth Vader and Varla and Frankenfurter at, at, at least... The used, of the Paradise. Yes. Let's just go nuts. I, I mean it, actually. I what they it. used to all have in <laughs> yeah. common, what they used to all have in common was that they were larger than life and it was easy to project upon them whatever your own ideas were for who they were, what their power was. And mm-hmm. over time, Star Wars started to be like, well, we need to start filling in all the gaps mm-hmm. and telling you exactly who he was. And I'm like, yeah. he was actually more potent when his story was vague. It was mysterious. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and I feel like the same way. I feel, I feel like if we had... A 100-episode animated series telling you everything about Frankenfurter's, like, adventures on his home planet and how he came to Earth and what his big plan was. And, oh, of course, this person he knew back in Transylvania looks so much like Rocky. And now I understand why he made Rocky look like that. So now now I can't project anything anymore. All I want is a musical that's just all of his failed experiments up until that point, and they just have musical numbers. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Before they like melt yeah. into a puddle of sand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the yeah. Trevor horror picture show. Yeah. <laughs> they were trying to make a guy named Trevor, and it didn't work out. Okay? Yeah. No, no thing. The Jeremy horror, <laughs> horror picture, picture show. show. I was gonna say like the the Bruno horror picture. Yeah. Show. 
but I, I, there's a tendency these days in a lot of mainstream entertainments to give sympathy to all of the characters. Yeah. Make sure that the villains have a relatable point of view. And that's a fine way to write a story. I'm not disparaging it. it. But in so doing, we are losing a lot of the immediate exciting villainy of a character who just loves doing bad shit. Uh, I've, yeah. I've read essay after essay on Iago from Othello, trying mm. to suss out his motivation for doing the evil things he does. He says it out loud. He hates the guy. He hates yeah. Othello. He resents yeah. him. That's motivation enough. But I think in leaving out a really sort of solid motivation, uh, we get a much better character. We get the theatrical immediacy of a character like Iago doing horrible shit. And we're shocked by it. And we like that. There's a dark part of us that likes that. And the idea of giving every somewhat asshole character a redemptive arc is taking that away from us. Well, look at the Joker. Look what they tried to do with the Joker. Yeah, it's like we're going to tell everything. He was this mysterious figure of just pure chaos and evil. And now it's like, oh, but he was sad. Yeah. Great. Like Thanks. Was, Thanks for that. That he, helped he a was, lot. He was a victim of a system, man. And uh, yeah. what a deep movie, he said sarcastically. Uh, yeah. Have you seen... Did you see Joker? I'm trying to remember. No, I didn't yeah. see Joker. You can see Joker if you ever want to. Oh, oh, cool. <laughs> okay. For, for, I know, uh, right? It feels like a threat. Uh, <laughs> first, I guess I could yeah. watch First thing it. you need to do, spill some Budweiser on your lap and then put it on. <laughs> and then you'll be in the oh. right state of mind. For mm. like Joker. In a yeast infection kind of state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just swell. <laughs> Just there's an odor to that film that, yeah. I, that, that I'm not, not not getting from the film that I'm getting from like dorm rooms I've mm. been in. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, faster pussy. I think he, I think I just wanted to add about Shakespeare and Iago. Like mm-hmm. I feel like Shakespeare was also like smart enough to realize or canny enough about people to realize mm-hmm. that even when you tell someone straight mm-hmm. up. I hate this person and that's why I'm going to kill them. Mm-hmm. That there's always going to be people who are like, oh, that's we got we got to unpack this mystery. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a million things to solve. And Shakespeare well, was like, fine, have at it. You know what? Mm-hmm. You're going to have plenty of space, Marvin. Like, I know yeah. you. Like, <laughs> but we see that in real life constantly. They're like yeah. people who storm the Capitol and they're all yelling, we believe all these things. And everyone at home's just like, Interesting. I wonder if it's a conspiracy by people who don't believe those things. How much more direct? <laughs> they were literally like live blogging it <laughs> and like telling the, everyone what they believed. This is like the least sophisticated mindset. And yeah, it's just... Yeah. We're, we can't accept... We're if too, something's too easy, if no. something's too straightforward, there's this weird conspiracy gene we all have yeah. where we're just like, it can't possibly be that simple. Yeah, that's like, too easy. That's too... It's It sounds like a bad plot. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like bad screenwriting. That's the idea. And so we're saying to ourselves, no, 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 no. This has got to be... And then we start coming up with headcanon in order to make everything work. And mm-hmm. it's really fucking dangerous in the real world. And <laughs> kind of fun in fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, all it is is fun to do if you're a fan fiction writer or yeah. if that's like you kicking around your imagination. I think it's a great fun thing when you're exercising your creative mind, your creative brain. I think it's dangerous when people start acting like it's actually, actually worth defending in an Mm -hmm. argument Mm -hmm. when it's worth 
I don't know, kind of fighting over yeah. to the point where it's giving them no pleasure and it's just creating negativity and hostility yeah. on spaces like, like Twitter. You understand, the Batman who lives in my head wouldn't do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, no, your version of this character is wrong. My version right. is right. That That's nonsense because that's just gatekeeping. All that is is it's, it's personal... <laughs> It's you're basically doxing yourself. You're like, "Hello world. I'm feeling very insecure today. This is yeah. how insecure I'm feeling." Woo! Boy, it's insecure. I define myself by my love of Batman and if anything challenges that or is even slightly different from it, I don't know how to feel. Yeah. And those are fun conversations to have with oh. other other Batman fans. Yeah, we can all have a good time. If, yeah. if you're but I feel like that's like an in the room conversation. Yeah. yeah. It's like those kind of things are maybe fun when you know the person you're with, so you know mm. that they're not going to yell and actually start having an actual tantrum because yeah. I've met nerds who um when you break down their theory in a way that they don't like will cry Mm. or you know act in other immature ways like children throw you know fists in the air temper tantrums these are these are grown adults that's an uncle of mine yeah you need to grow up i'm sorry peter pan lied to you (laughs) many many years ago you are going to grow up whether you like it or not your body's going to travel with you and you have to learn how to have conversations with other people without having like meltdowns every time yeah. it, you know. you're also going to have to learn how to read texts because Peter Pan was pretty clear that Peter Pan's life was a tragedy Yeah, like right from the beginning like it's fun for a little bit but then eventually it's time to fucking move on Peter and then he never does that's supposed to be sad well J.M. We Barry it's, it's about J.M. Barry's obsession with a dead child well, in real life and creating a neverland for this dead child to live on it's a way of trying to seek catharsis for death and it got published it's weird <laughs> like normally that kind of stuff sticks in people's diaries no this one became a children's literature canon and now we have to discuss and it now robin williams is eating frosting nothing oh but frosting <laughs> uh, it just goes to a bigger problem of uh, a lack of Introspection, a, a, yeah. an inability to interpret, yeah, uh, to critical read reading. critically, yeah, yeah in, that's, in, that's in the modern world. In the modern, uh, yeah. I, I see all these articles all the time about uh, the one that, that I just saw today was about Back to the Future. There's a, a joke in Back to the Future yeah. where they go to the mall and it's called Twin Pines Mall, mm-hmm. and then Marty McFly goes back in time to the side of the mall and it's empty. There's just two pines there, and over the course of the movie, he runs a car into one and knocks one over. Yeah. The end of the movie goes back and it's called Lone Pine Mall. Isn't that cute? It's a cute yeah. little setup yeah. payoff. I didn't notice it the first yeah. couple of times yeah. I watched it because like the the setup yeah. is so much earlier than the payoff, mm-hmm. and it's kind of not important right now because all you're worried about is whether Doc Brown's mm-hmm. going to be alive. Right. Yeah. So, but it's, it's, it's totally a, easy to miss it the first couple of times you watch. But, it, sure. but it's, a, it's a cute gag, and then somebody noticed this, and they're presenting it as, "Oh my god, this is like mind blowing." How how did they think to set something up and then pay it off? It's called screenwriting. You just yeah. do that it's, in screenplay. It's good you, screenwriting. You do but, it in the draft. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> Well, it's, you think of a gag and you write it in three yeah. parts and you space it throughout the movie. It's not hugely sophisticated, well, but I think that people are comes, so unused to noticing those kinds of details and, and analyzing and that. And also, sort of people way. have this conception that filmmaking is improv, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's not. 
Um, mm-hmm. Every once in a while, an actor might improv a line, and oh boy, they will talk about it in interviews afterwards, and they'll say about how they had a huge influence on the script, and maybe they did. But there was also a person who wrote that script in the first place mm. that they were maybe riffing off of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And maybe most of the time they weren't actually riffing off of it because you have to stick to some kind of plot or else you're going to go into nonsense land. Yeah. The other thing about that is I think it's worth remembering, and it's something that I'm, I've so often forgotten, is a lot of us are looking at that Back to the Future thing and thinking to ourselves, oh, well, yeah, it's a, it's a good gag, but it's not that mm-hmm. big a deal. But there's a lot of like young people who don't understand setup and payoff yet. Like It's never been presented to them. In a clear way. And this all of a sudden, for a lot of people who are just kind of new to it, this might be a light bulb going off. And this is like a cool moment. Oh, mm. I understand joke construction. I realize now that Back to the Future is actually a more complicated screenplay. And I should, like, look over with a fine-tooth comb and look for all these types of payoffs. Because there's a million of them in that movie. Yeah. Then that's cool. But the thing is, is that not everybody is on the same place in the path. And there's so many people yeah. looking at people going... Wow, I really didn't think about how well written Back to the Future is, and then going to themselves, ah, idiots. And I'm like, some of them are just young, dude. Yeah, you know, it's we're all learning, um, and unfortunately, um, critical reading has not been taught in critical thinking, rather, has not been taught in schools to the extent it was taught when I was in school in many, many years. Yeah, uh, there was actually a shifted. Like, in North America, at least, there was, uh, they shifted away from critical thinking, like, not long after I went through grade school. Yeah. And that is one of the biggest things that America has yet to recover from. It's a crime, actually, what I think we did to the education system and how people were taught how to take tests, people were taught that STEM is important or whatever, but... Again, we weren't taught to to question. We weren't taught to have meaningful conversations and dialogue about what we're given and actually understand text as it was presented to us. And and boy, are we seeing a lot of repercussions from that of people just not being able to parse what's coming to them through the media. Yeah. And it's really important. So I take film criticism very seriously, in, A, just because I love the art, but also I think the art of critical analysis extends far beyond cinema Mm -hmm. and if you're good at if you can find like a way whether it's music or movies or books or anything really where you can exercise that critical part of your brain i think it just extends into everything yeah i think it's really important yeah Yeah. that's faster pussycat kill kill yeah (laughs) yeah um a really wonderful movie and i hope you go see it please do um it's a little hard to track down it's not streaming anywhere at the moment because russ meyer is very protective of where his estate is is very very protective of their film because he owns them all yeah he owns it uh it's worth the 40 bucks to get the dvd um it's not worth the 500 dollars to get the blu-ray uh, which is long out of print. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are bootlegs floating around, but if you watch a bootleg, you owe it to Russ Meyer to buy the DVD after. Yeah. So, uh, At some like point, if, you, if you want to watch it tonight, sucker, yeah. watch the bootleg, but then buy the DVD immediately thereafter. Yeah. Or order it while you're watching it. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, those are the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, Gotta support him so that they release more of his work. Please. I want to see Mud Honey. This is the... <laughs> like, We've been trying to track down Mud Honey for a while. There, there was, are other it was a, films... It was until it closed. I know. I, I know. There were periods in my life where I could not afford his DVDs because they yeah. were... Because they were, the they estate would only yeah. release the like, expensive yeah, versions. It's yeah. like these really stripped down DVDs, but they were like at Criterion prices. Well, Beyond yeah. the Valley of the Dolls is on Criterion. That's true. Yeah. So that one's pretty readily available. And that's a really good movie. We might even be doing it on this series. We haven't decided mm-hmm. yet. We try not to do the same filmmaker too many times. Uh, but that's a really, really good movie, and you should totally see that. But in many respects, it's one of his more accessible weird films. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of his films, like Super Vixens or Faster Pussycat, uh, are a little harder to track down, but they are worth the journey. Mm-hmm. That's the case. Uh, they're released yeah. on his own line, which is called Bosomania. <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> that's, that's the name of his home field. Bless him. Again. Yeah. Who else Who else has the audacity to just throw out their kink and yeah. name a label after it? Want to watch my movies? They got boobs in them. Yeah. Yes, please. Oh, oh and uh, w- one last word. That would, be, that would be like uh, if Steven Spielberg started a production company and called it Daddy Issues. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it'd just be like, which would be accurate, but yeah. at the same time, Welcome you're like, to, wow. To, yeah. Children in Peril Pictures. Yeah. Um, have you guys seen the, the movie Amazon Women on the Moon? Love it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Russ Meyer's in that. Uh, there's a bit oh, where... Uh, oh, he's guy, actually in it? Yeah, th- there's a, a, a vignette near the end where a guy's looking for a video in a video store. It's Friday oh. and he doesn't have a date. Oh my gosh, yeah. And, and, yeah. and the guy, a guy behind the desk says, Psst, hey, don't got a date? And we pan around and it's Russ Meyer working the video store. That was Russ Meyer. Oh, and he pulls fun. And he pulls a personalized tape off the shelf and hands it to him. And he takes it home and of course it's this like first person video of this really busty woman seducing the viewer. So totally fitting. That sketch goes in wonderful directions. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And again, I'm not going to spoil the joke because you should see Amazon women. It's a hit or miss film, but the hits in that movie will Mm. stick with me forever. (laughs) There is a Jack the Ripper sketch (laughs) that I will not ruin for you. If you haven't seen that film, there is a Jack the Ripper sketch in Amazon women on the moon, which is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life to this day. Um, Anyway, that is it for uh, episode zero for this week. We'll be back next week with It Came from Outer Space. And I'm looking forward to learning where this movie came from. Maybe we'll find out together. Maybe. I actually haven't seen this one. Came from Merced, California. (laughs) (laughs) Mystery solved. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, you, of course, can find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Winnie Seibel. Hold on. I want to give Michelle all the time in the world at the end. I want to to get through our spiel and leave it all to you. Oh. Okay. So we're on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. If you want exclusive content, it's there. Boom. Email letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can talk to us about anything we talk about in this podcast or other things as well. We might read your email outcoming. We've got mail. Boom. Michelle, Boom. you have so much cool stuff to tell people about. Oh, thank Hi- you. Hyper stuff. Uh, well, first of all, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at underscore M Lopez de Silva. That's M L O P E S D A S I L V A. And I wrote a book called Hooker which is about a bisexual sex worker who hunts a serial killer in 1980s Los Angeles using hooks as her weapons of choice. It's a hell of a good time, a retrowave thriller. I hope you check it out. You can download it um, as an ebook from Amazon or something like that, but you can also just buy it from your local bookstore. Um, 
please support them first. Yeah. If they don't have yeah. it, you can ask them to order it, and they can do so very easily. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. They Barnes need the and Noble right is carrying it, yeah. even so. Yeah. There's you have options, and that is in case you hadn't couldn't tell from the description, it's a good double feature with Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. <laughs> so it's another it's another bisexual vigilante, awesomely empowering. Uh, cult type thriller and it's really great it sits well I love it yeah got sex workers kicking mm-hmm. butt so you know also uh, stick around because uh, in the next few weeks we will be opening up uh, uh, or rather Michelle will be opening up an Etsy shop yes so we're going to be opening a uh, soap stop soap shop or soap store online via Etsy like you said going to be happening sometime this month uh, this month has gotten away from me a little bit, but it should be fun. I like to use salt in a lot of these bars. They have salt, uh, their spa bars, so good exfoliators. They're gorgeous. And they're pretty. Mm. They're gorgeous. Pretty. We're, we're, there'll be like a limited run of a few designs to start, and then there'll be more uh, added over time, and they are really cool looking. They're really, they feel good on your skin because of the glycerin. Yeah. Just gonna throw. They're just like there. pure soap, none of that yeah. other nonsense. It's all um, handmade. It's good stuff. It's really really cool. And so yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be able. There'll be links. Uh, we'll put out a link through the critically acclaimed uh, Twitter. We'll be sending it out uh, on my Twitter as well and um, the Facebook group. And I'll probably put a link on the Patreon as well. We want people to know about because we've had a lot of people expressing an interest since we talked about how much we were doing this and. Yeah, I'm really excited for people to get their hands on some of the stuff you've been doing because Michelle oh, is not just uh, an illustrator and an author, but it turns out she's actually a master craftsperson uh, <laughs> who has been designing really unique soaps, and I can't wait for the world to enjoy them. Oh, well, thank you, sweetheart. Yeah. <laughs> wait, you guys know each other? Yeah, we've met. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thank you, everybody, once again, for listening to Episode Zero. We'll be back next week with It Came From Outer Space. Of course, we have more podcasts on the on the thing. Uh, hookers available wherever fine books are sold. Uh, soaps will be available wherever we sell them. Probably the, <laughs> Etsy is the plan, but we'll give you the link as soon as we have one. And uh, Whitney is cool, too. Thanks. You're so cool. Nah. And until next time, I see you shiver with Antissa. <laughs>